All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. We have some some Bibles back there. Um, it'll be helpful for you as we uh, study God's Word together. And if you have your Bible, um, please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. That's Mark 10, verses 13 through 31. Follow along with me as I read. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the end of the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you show us truth about you, about your kingdom, and ourselves as we study your word together. 
We desperately need your help in this Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you all a picture. There you see me and two brothers in Christ against a cheesy holiday background. Uh, On the right is Pat Lampman, a former colleague and a current uh, friend of mine. And in the middle is Robert Chan, a convicted murderer who is serving a life sentence in a California prison without parole. Only his oversized chambray prison issue t-shirt or shirt buttoned up to the top would betray the fact that this picture was taken in prison. Robert was a student at the school where I teach here in Fullerton, and he was also Pat's student at the time he had committed murder. He would have graduated high school the same year that I graduated from high school, in 1994. Had he not committed an unthinkable crime, he would have graduated from one of the top Ivy League schools that he had already been accepted to as a junior in high school. And he would no doubt be doing remarkable things today by anyone's standards. Years ago, Robert Chan repented of his sins and started following Jesus Christ. That's right, a convicted murderer that society has justly locked away has access to the kingdom of God. Robert Chan has an imperishable inheritance in God's kingdom. Now, to many, this is simply incomprehensible. In fact, it might even just seem at face value offensive. And we're all entitled to our opinions, but we aren't entitled to our facts. The fact is that God's word remarkably makes sense of what many would consider unfathomable turning conventional wisdom about what gets us into heaven on its head. The passage we're studying today provides insight into this paradoxical nature of God's kingdom. So I want to look at three points, and you can follow along in your bulletin and see those if you're taking notes as we move through the sermon today. I want to talk about our deepest need. I want to talk about the purpose of the law. And I want to talk about the power of the gospel. First, our deepest need. One of the fundamental issues that all people wrestle with is the existence of and circumstances surrounding the afterlife. Every religion explains the afterlife in some way. And in each case, human moral or ethical behavior here on earth is a factor involved in what the afterlife will bring. The similarities end somewhere around there, however. What exactly grants one entrance into the afterlife varies widely, whether it's reaching a kind of enlightenment, observing the strictures and rituals of the religion, or like my favorite, the ancient Vikings, where you simply had to die with your sword in hand. Uh, Every religion, young or old, holds out this essential idea that what happens here on earth has eternal consequences. What you do here on earth affects the afterlife. Now, my guess is most of us in this room have had the question put to us at one point or another, where would you go if you were to die tonight? Or to put it another way, 
If you were to stand before God tonight in judgment, what would you say to him in your defense? These are important questions. These are ultimate questions. They cut to the quick because our answers to them point not only to our understanding of the afterlife, but to our understanding of how we prove ourselves to God, our understanding of who God is fundamentally, and our own views uh, of of a very personal and, and, and potential sensitive issue, who is in and who is out. Who has access to God? Who will gain an inheritance and a reward and a place in God's kingdom? And for Christians, what is our place? What is our obligation in spreading this message? In our passage today, we see this question of access and inheritance uh, and ultimately our deepest need, which is to be reconciled to God in, in two fundamental ways. We see specific teaching about our access to God's kingdom in the sense of the ultimate nature of his kingdom in the afterlife. But just as importantly, we see access to the kingdom here on earth, especially as it relates to the king himself. Let's look again at verses 13 through 16. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now you can imagine the situation. Jesus is teaching his disciples And some parents bring their children to receive Jesus' blessing. The disciples are clearly perturbed at this situation. They don't have time for this. This is an unnecessary distraction. And in their defense, this is probably an appropriate response in the culture. There's no indication that these people's children were demon-possessed or sick. This wasn't urgent Jesus' public ministry had turned to this more private and personal one with his own disciples. And, And he's dealing with weighty and deep things surrounding the reality of God's kingdom. This was a private affair. And for families to interrupt this was, to the disciples, simply unacceptable. But in true form, Jesus confounds the disciples here. And rightly so. He was indignant, the scripture says. He was offended. And as only Jesus can do, he takes a typical situation, in this case the dismissal of the families bringing their children, and he unveils a profound truth. Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You can almost imagine the disciples looking at each other with that, say what, kind of look um, that people get when they don't understand what just happened. Some might have actually, though, remembered what had happened just a few verses back. Remember in chapter 9, the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest. And what does Jesus say? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And then what did Jesus do? He took a child and put it in the midst of them. And then in taking it in his arms, he said, whoever receives 
one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, so one chapter later, we have the disciples essentially doing the opposite of what Jesus had asked them to do. They should have been ushering the children to the Lord, but instead they intentionally create a barrier. They prevent access, and Jesus is not happy about this. Because bringing the children to him in this world is in some way fundamentally related to receiving him in the next world and inheriting his kingdom. Well, how do we know this? We know this because Jesus reveals this. He says what has become a common phrase in Mark, truly I say to you, which indicates an authoritative and new teaching. This is Jesus' special revelation to his disciples and to us. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He takes the children and he blesses them. And in true Markan fashion, the episode just ends. We don't get much of an explanation. And Jesus is on the move again. I imagine the disciples in this moment fairly confused, growing up in a traditional culture where working and proving oneself worthy brings reward. It's hard to comprehend that children should be the model for the entrance into God's kingdom. Who has access to God's kingdom? Children? Who gets the inheritance? Children? What do they know? What have they done? They contribute nothing, and they deserve nothing. To the disciples, something about this had to seem backward, upside down. What does he mean by this? You know, today we have a tendency to worship childhood as this time of pure, sweet innocence. It's not uncommon to think of children in our culture as these unblemished, blank slates, undefiled. You don't have to be a parent too long to know that this is a romantic notion, that children are like the rest of us sinners. Sure, purity, sweetness, innocence, these exist in children, especially the young ones, and that's how they trick us into having more. Um, but let's, let's, uh, let's just be honest. Even among the best kids, these, these uh, child idealized notions are fleeting exper uh, experiences. If you want to confirm this, just go to any restaurant on Kids Eat Free Night. Okay? And watch the carnival of horrors unfold. Um, uh, this idea of children being these pure and undefiled um, beings is really an extension of enlightenment thinking, and it's an idea that would be great if it were true, but uh, like Marxism, it, it looks good on paper, um, but not so much in practice, right? So when it says come like a child, I don't think we should have some sort of disnified version of children being these wise undefiled spiritual beings. Uh, that's not the kind of child that Jesus is talking about. And he doesn't point to that as an explanation. In fact, he doesn't point to really anything as an explanation right there. Mark instead follows up with uh, another vignette. He, he unfolds this cryptic uh, idea 
of children being childlike, being this prerequisite for entrance into God's kingdom. He, he makes the statement, but he doesn't explain the statement. He moves along, and Mark's going to show us through this next episode what he means by this. Our deepest need is to be reconciled to God. And Jesus gives us this obscure condition, doing this in some way, in some childlike way. The next passage here deals with a noble young man. In Matthew's account, the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus in what is probably a really familiar passage to most. And in this passage, we learn more about our access to God's kingdom as well as our inheritance. But specifically, we learn about the nature and purpose of God's law. This is the second point on, on my sermon outline, but it's a necessary point. Our dip, deepest need is to be reconciled to God, but a correct understanding of God's law is absolutely necessary in this. So follow along with me at verse 17 and following. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You know, we've seen situations where people are asking Jesus questions of theological importance before. This particular instance departs from the others from the beginning. The young man alone ran up, communicating a sense of urgency. He knelt before Jesus, communicating respect and submission. And he calls Jesus good teacher. And then he asks Jesus the ultimate theological question, the question we just as Christians would think, I would beg for someone to ask me this question. It's so important. He asked the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If first impressions count for anything, this guy is Jesus' kind of guy. He is coming to Jesus with the same kind of urgency as we've seen with those who needed healing. Physically. But this this is uh, immediately and impressive to me that this guy sees beyond the mere physical needs of his life and he is urgent about the deep spiritual realities of life. He's going to the right person, asking the right questions with the right attitude. What is not to love about this guy? And Jesus' response to him is curious. Why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. Well, this statement obviously begs for some clarification. We know, as Mark's audience of early Christians believe, 
Christian believers knew that Jesus is both good and God. We know that. uh, But what's going on here is some version of dramatic irony. Jesus knows he's God. He knows he's good. But Jesus has not yet revealed that to everyone, to the masses. And notice that he doesn't actually deny it either, that he's good or God. Instead, he wants to point this man to something foundational and something ultimately true. Something that inevitably should lead any person to repentance. To seeking God's mercy and forgiveness as a means of grace. Jesus wants to make clear here the otherness of God. God is the eternal and transcendent source of good. Anything that we call good in this world is just a shadow of goodness. But God is eternal. He's unchanging. He is the ultimate standard of goodness. And any of our standards of goodness fall short of the perfect standard. I mean, consider this. Uh, What batting average does a baseball player have to have to be considered good? Oh, come on. I'm not even a baseball fan. 300, thank you. Yes, 300. And 300 suggests that he hits 3 out of 10 pitches, right? All right. That's a standard of goodness. All right? Human standards of goodness allow for imperfection. They also allow for change. What it took to be a good employee 40 years ago is in some ways the same, but in other ways it's, it's very different. And as far as moral good is concerned... We're changing all the time. It doesn't even take a generation to change the notion of what is morally good. So right from the beginning of this conversation, Jesus wants to challenge this man's essential notion of goodness. Jesus will answer his questions, and he's taking this man seriously. But he's framing this interaction around a fundamental reality. By God's righteous standard, nobody is good. God alone is good. And how do we know this? That we aren't good and that he is. Immediately, Jesus reminds the man of the means by which we have any chance of understanding God's righteous standard, the law. He goes right to the Ten Commandments, or at least some version of six of them. And the young man answers him immediately and honestly, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Consider what just happened there. What did Jesus ask? And what question did this young man answer? Just looking at the plain order of the text, we see that Jesus cautions the man to call anyone but God good. And then Jesus reminds the man of the commandments. And then the man justifies himself, claiming he's kept the commandments. Jesus didn't ask him, Hey, have you kept all the commandments? But that's the question this man answered. Jesus is not asking, have you kept the commandments uh, in some way because uh, uh, he, he knows that this is somehow one of the purposes of God's law. But he is asking this to reveal this man's sin. The commandments exist to show us that we are not good. 
there are several purposes for God's commandments, but one of them is, is to recognize that we're not good. Jesus knows the heart of this man. He knows that this man earnestly tries to be good, to do good, to keep God's law. And my guess is that this man, if he were among us today, would be very impressive. He's remarkable in many ways. In Matthew's gospel, he's a rich, young ruler. Okay, so he's got wealth, he's got youth, he's got authority, probably influence. And added to that, he's a really good guy. He's one of those guys you meet and then you think, you wish he weren't that good so that he would have some sort of flaw. Um, but Jesus likes him too. The passage shows us that Jesus, looking at this man, loves him. Now, this is an odd statement. We've seen Jesus show compassion upon those that he looks at, genuine care and concern. But for some reason, Jesus really loves this guy. And he gives him a loving response. You lack one thing. Go. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And follow me. Now the careful reader might be saying, wait a second, you lack one thing? That was just a list of four. Uh, Jesus gave this guy four things. But these four things stem from one thing. And we'll get to that one thing. But first I want to just dive in a little bit to what is Jesus trying to expose in this statement to this man. Back in verse 19, when Jesus named the commandments, he focused on those commandments dealing with how we treat one another. And this man seems to have kept these. Now clearly this guy was not around for the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus clarifies the true meaning of the law concerning our neighbors. That looking at a woman lustfully is adultery. Hatred of one's brother is murder. But Jesus doesn't want to reteach that here. He doesn't go there. There's something else he wants to expose. There's something else this man needs to hear. Jesus' response to the man points him back to the first part of God's law, specifically the first commandment. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. What does Jesus' command to sell everything, to give to the poor, and to follow him reveal? It reveals a blind spot. This man's idolatry, his first love, the love of money. Mark tells us that he was disheartened, and he, he goes away sorrowful. He had had great possessions. This man's understanding of God's law is flawed. He thought that the law was the measurement by which he would be justified. What Jesus shows him instead is that it is the means by which he is condemned. He is worshiping a false god, the god of money. And we know that Jesus is very concerned about this. Jesus has already used strong language back in chapter 9 to reveal the dangers of sin. It's better to sever a hand or a foot or to pluck an eye out if it causes you to sin. This man's wealth causes him to sin. It has his allegiance. It has his heart. And so Jesus is calling him to do something dramatic. 
to cut it off. Jesus' standard for meeting the law seems high. But holding to this standard is absolutely biblical. And it's Jesus' own clear teaching. Turn for a moment back to Matthew chapter 5, or over to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, and uh, with verse 17 through 20. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's Jesus' teaching on the law. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Much of Mark's gospel has concerned the Pharisees adding to the law. We've seen that again. Don't add to God's law. But Jesus here is as concerned about our minimizing God's law. And that's what we tend to do. We've done that from the beginning. Avoiding responsibility. Looking for loopholes. Remember the glory days when there was only one law? Don't eat that. What was Adam's response? Eve made me do it. What was Eve's response? The serpent made me do it. What was the serpent's tactic in getting Eve to break the law? First, he minimizes the validity of the law. Did God really say, don't eat that fruit? And second, he minimizes the severity of the punishment. Surely you will not die. You see, our tendency is just like Adam's and just like Eve's and just like this rich young ruler's. We find ways to justify ourselves. Think about it. When someone else lies, we're prone to label them as liars. But what happens when we lie? All of a sudden, extenuating circumstances come to the surface, don't they? We might bend the truth. We might embellish. We hedge. We dodge. We we minimize. Just this week, I spoke to a friend who's a good person, someone I admire immensely, but he's not a believer. He was taking his son to orientation over at Cal Baptist, and the speaker at orientation made the declaration that everyone in the room had sinned on that day. And so my friend asked me, what is sin? And how would I know if I sinned on that day? Um, And I asked him, right back. Well, what do you think? And he said, well, it's the Ten Commandments, right? And he said, I haven't cheated on my wife. I'm not lying to anyone. I'm not cheating anyone. I'm not murdering anyone. And I said, wow, it just so happens that I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm speaking this this Sunday um, on this topic. And and I, I went through this notion of God's righteous standard for the law. And I'm praying that that will be one of many conversations he was confounded, though. He, he didn't understand it either because, like 
what is our natural fallen human condition, we tend to think of the law like the sleep number bed, right? You can make it harder or softer depending on how you're feeling in the moment so that you can rest at ease. That was a horrible metaphor, I know. Um, but, but the law isn't like the sleep number bed. And really, the law is harder than the sleep number bed ever could be. And I'll abandon that metaphor because I'll kill it eventually. But you get the point. Our natural condition is to bend the law to a place where we feel we're okay, that we're justified. If we are simply left with the law, as the rich young ruler was, we're doomed. We're doomed. Jesus elaborates, verse 23 and following. He looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But he said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, Who can be saved? Okay, let's be honest here. This is the part where Americans get nervous. It might be the case that up to this point, you've assumed that Jesus' command to the rich young ruler was uniquely circumstantial. But Jesus follows up with some pretty clear teaching that smacks of universal application. He says the same thing three times for emphasis. Twice through repetition and once through metaphor. And what is that statement? It will be remarkably difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Think of the biggest animal that you've ever seen. Think of the smallest hole you've ever seen. Now, try to cram that animal through that hole. Yeah, that's the chance of a wealthy person getting into the kingdom of God. Now, to our modern ears, as those who enjoy the highest standard of living of any culture in the history of mankind, this can sound immediately hard to hear. It's a challenge, to be sure. I'm actually pretty amazed at how challenged the disciples who were living a life of poverty were by this. They were amazed, they were astonished. Who can be saved? I think they were picking up on some of the reality of the teaching that left to your own devices, rich or poor, it's impossible with man to get into the kingdom of God. The law prevents that. But here, Jesus is challenging us with some important ideas about wealth. It's not uncommon where people think that wealth is a a surefire indicator of God's blessing. Certainly anything we have comes from God. His material blessings are blessings, but the disciples seem in their response probably a a typically Jewish response to assume that there's some sort of one-to-one correspondence between wealth and blessing. 
Even today, this is a seductive message. The health-wealth movement consistently peddles a name-it-and-claim-it message, one where spiritual maturity maps onto the money in our pocketbooks. Jesus obliterates this idea in this passage. What is it about wealth that raises barriers to access to God's kingdom? It's not necessarily bad, right? We know that 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. Let's think for a moment. What does money represent? Ultimately, it represents freedom. And it represents independence. If you want money, you don't want money for its own sake. You want money because there is an object at the end of the money that that money gets you. An object or an idea. Maybe it's security. If I have more wealth, I have more independence, I have more options, I have more choice, I have more. I have more. Most of us want money and wealth because it can give us what we really want. Or at least we think it can. I've never met someone who simply wants money for its own sake. I've never met Scrooge McDuck who just wants to swim in vaults of money. All right? I do know many self-included who have or can place an inordinate emphasis on money because it will get them something. In my case, I want money to bring security. I can obsess about it. I can look into the crystal ball of my imagination of the future and invent bills that don't even exist. Needs that have not even yet arisen. And oftentimes, this, this idolatry, and it can look good. I can read a personal finance book that has real a godly attitude towards money and then become even more responsible and become a better steward. And these good things can become ultimate things. They can become bigger than God. They can reorient my identity and my life around something other than God. And it happens so easily. I don't even realize it. It's happening underneath. Jesus clearly is not interested in the idea of um, having security and wealth. I mean, look back at Mark 6, 8. What's he tell his, um, his disciples? He charged them to take nothing on their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. In this passage, Jesus asked the young ruler to do something similar. To leave the freedom, the notoriety, and the influence behind. The choice that you're off and freedom that your idol offered you is not freedom. It's too seductive. Then who can be saved? With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. The key to understanding this response is grounded in our understanding of the power of the gospel. Jesus confronts this man with the law. But he also gives him the gospel. The one thing that this man lacked was faith. What does it mean to have faith? 
Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, The time has fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Faith in Jesus, it requires two things, repentance and belief. The young ruler's lack of faith is evidenced by his lack of repentance and belief. That's really what Jesus asked him to do. What is repentance but casting down idols? His idol was his wealth. Jesus' specific charge is that he sell his stuff and give it, to his, uh, give it to the poor is a specific call to repentance. And the call to belief, come and follow me. You see, Jesus knew this man's heart, just like he knows each of our hearts. In order to inherit eternal life, this man had to be in a place where he had nothing to give, nothing to promote himself, nothing to prove himself with. Coming to Jesus with nothing means something. For to come to Jesus with nothing is to come to him utterly dependent, utterly needy. In other words, it's to come to him like a child. For whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus wanted this man to come to him not with wealth or youth or influence or moral performance or money or anything. He wanted him to come empty-handed like a child. Believing in Jesus does not require that we sell everything, but that we recognize that nothing we have or do will save us. Every other religion on earth gives us something to do, a series of performance tasks that grant us access that earn an inheritance. But the truth is that God's law condemns us. We can't satisfy it. And because of this, we are utterly at God's mercy. Our understanding of the gospel is founded upon our understanding of the law because the law condemns us, because our faith in Jesus saves us from the law. Paul explores this idea. Really quickly, turn to Galatians 3.23. Galatians 3.23, Paul says, Now before faith, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. In some versions it says schoolmaster. Until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, God is the only good and part of what makes him supremely good is his holiness. He is holy and cannot dwell with that which is unholy. He demands justice. In fact, part of his goodness is his justice. That his law exacts punishment and requires sacrifice. That wrongs done in this world will be addressed and met with God's just wrath. Another thing that God makes God so good is God's mercy. God loves to show forgiveness to those who ask for it. God is good and holy and just and merciful. He is the perfect form of all of these things and all of these good things can coexist perfectly because of this, he sent his son Jesus so that goodness came down to us. In his holiness, Jesus fulfilled the law and he offered up his life as a just payment for our sin. And it was by this sacrifice that God could show us mercy because he loves us. Because he loves us. Jesus also loved the rich young ruler. 
I think the reason Jesus looked at the rich young ruler with such affection and love was because Jesus himself was the rich young ruler. He had heaven and earth. He had the perfect eternal relationship with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He had all the wealth and power and authority like no one could ever imagine. And he left it all. He sold it all. He gave it to us, poor children of God. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. And when he had given it all, he gave more. He gave his life. Other religions give us a philosophy and a to-do list. Christianity gives us a person. A person who calls us to follow him. In application, I think it's important to consider the nature of the Gospels. They're descriptive accounts of people who encounter Jesus. And there's a tendency to uh, draw uh, prescriptions out of these descriptions. But there are some valuable takeaways here. First, we should recognize that so often the way we sin deal with disordered affections. Loving other good things too much. How do you know how do, how do you know how to identify these blind spots? I think this is where the church comes in. Do you have trusting relationships with brothers or sisters in Christ who there's enough goodwill and trust and love stored up where you can honestly ask them to reveal your blind spots or if needed they could honestly do that. Second, I think repentance is something we really need to uh, always focus on. It seems like Christianity 101, but how often do you repent of your sin? One thing I'm so thankful for here at Grace Fullerton is the consistency which, with which Kenny and Jesse lead us in corporate repentance. It's so important. And thirdly, Jesus suggests that discipleship can involve leaving important things for the sake of the gospel. The call to follow Jesus can be exceedingly hard. To follow his example of self-sacrifice, excruciating. We need to fight against the lie that difficulty and suffering mean that God doesn't love us and that he's not for us. Following Jesus does cost something. And that cost comes with a blessing. Verses 29 through 31 confirm this. Even here on earth, he gives us the church. He gives us Brothers and sisters and children and mothers and lands, a hundredfold. Interestingly enough, on Father's Day, it doesn't mention that he gives us back fathers. And that's because that place is reserved for our Father in heaven. It's our eternal Father. Jesus points us to our spiritual family at the end of this, the church, where we have many brothers and sisters. And, and outside of this church, there are millions that we don't know. In repenting and believing in Jesus and following Jesus, we become part of God's family. And as God's family, we invite others in, even murderers like Robert Chan, knowing that the gospel has opened the gates to heaven to any who would re repent and believe. This reality hit home for me when I heard the voices of our brothers and sisters in South Carolina as they addressed the man who brutally murdered 
their family members at a prayer meeting. Listen to these statements, brothers and sisters in Christ. The daughter of a victim, Ethel Lance, said to this man, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me, and I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. The husband of Myra Thompson said this to the murderer, I forgive you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change it, can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than what you are right now. These people are are faithfully following Jesus. The words of these people aren't mere sentiment. They aren't merely being better people. They are words that show a deep understanding of how depraved we all are. That Whether or not we seem like run-of-the-mill good people or whether we've murdered someone, that the law condemns us, but that our faith in Christ can free us. That the work of Christ and the grace of God is big enough to restore and to redeem. That at core we are desperately wicked and profoundly needed. And that we have a Lord who has given us the lawbreakers a way to follow God. We have access to his kingdom. We've inherited it. And we know that he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of scripture. Lord, help us to see law and gospel rightly. And may this work its way out, Lord. And not only the ways that we deal with each other in the world, Lord, but especially in how we we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.